You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law. Some complicated international law issues here. What kind of docket is Chief Justice Roberts facing? Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Neil Devins, a professor at William & Mary Law School. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. Is this essentially the Fifth Circuit haunting? He has presided over a so-called hot bench at the Supreme Court. Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We're in for June Grasso. Coming up on the show, we'll talk with legal reporter Holly Barker about what it takes to scrub old racist laws off the books. And attorney Will Hahn will join us to discuss Yeshiva University's fight to block a LGBTQ club on campus. But first, we're joined by Chris Strom, a reporter for Bloomberg News, to discuss why the Justice Department is likely to wait until after the midterm elections to bring any charges against former President Donald Trump. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. So the Justice Department has two separate investigations ongoing into former President Trump that are happening at the same time, right? So can you start off by telling us what the government is after in each of these investigations? Yeah, so the most immediate investigation right now is the investigation into uh, Trump uh, having classified documents at uh, his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. Um, the government has uh, established that there were class of, there were documents with classified markings at uh, Trump's home, and uh, the uh, Justice Department and the FBI are investigating uh, whether the documents were mishandled and the classification levels of the documents. And the um, and they're also working in concert with the intelligence agencies to determine if um, any uh, any sources of methods were compromised. So that's the first one. The second investigation has been the ongoing investigation into the um, January 6th uh, plot and to overturn the 2020 election. 
And in that investigation, one of the central um, elements that's being uh, looked into is Trump's role in creating false electors in uh, swing states that would um, uh, uh, vote to certify for um, Trump as opposed to the winner of the election, who was Joe Biden. Now, you reported that we're not likely to see any charges stemming from these investigations until after the midterm elections. Tell us why that is. There's two primary uh, reasons that we're not likely to see charges anytime soon. Um, the first one is that there's still a, a extensive amount of work that needs to be done. Um, the government has said in court filings uh, just recently that uh, with regard to the investigation of the classified documents, they are in the early stages of their investigation. And new information continues to come forward. The government is still collecting uh, evidence, uh, reviewing evidence to determine the scope of any breaches. And... Um, there's just not um, uh, there, there's still a lot of work for them to do in 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 both the classified documents investigation and the January sixth investigation. Mm-hmm. The second reason is that um, the Justice Department also has a policy uh, that no public actions should be taken in high profile cases um, right before an election um, that could be seen as uh, influencing the outcome of that election. And um, the November elections are just around the corner. Traditionally, um, prosecutors have looked at that policy as, as taking place 60 days before an election, which in this case would be September 10th. Now, mm-hmm. Trump isn't on the ballot, but Trump's candidates are on the ballot, and Trump represents a very uh, significant political force um, in this country under which people in the Justice Department um Uh, believe that the policy applies to Trump in this case. So you mentioned this uh, policy that the DOJ has. Haven't there been some pretty uh, high-profile times, though, in the past where the department has ignored uh, that policy? Yes, uh, and department officials have come under criticism for doing so. The most, one of the most notable ones was when James Comey, the former head of the FBI, um, revealed that the FBI was reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton uh, 10 days before the 2016 election. Um, and so uh, uh, Comey was criticized um, really from all corners for um, making that decision in a lo- and, and doing it in a way that it became public. Um, and then um, also in the 2020 election, um, the former Attorney General Bill Barr uh, came out right before, in, in the in the days right before that election and said that it would be okay for uh, uh, U.S. prosecutors to begin to talk publicly about investigations into election fraud and, and their findings. Mm. The Justice Department recently enacted a new policy for political appointees that you wrote about. Uh, can you tell us about that and who it covers? Sure. Um, so traditionally... Um, Government employees face restrictions when the elections when the elections arrive. In in the weeks leading up to an election, um, uh, government employees uh, have to follow certain um, uh, rules in terms of participating in in political events or attending political events. Um, and um, there's a difference between what a uh, career government employee can do and what a political appointee can do, somebody who's, you know, directly appointed into a political position by the, by the president. 
what the Justice Department uh, did uh, just just the other day was put new restrictions on political appointees. Prior to <clears throat> they, they up until now they've been allowed to attend political events in their personal capacity during their time off, but Attorney General Garland uh, uh, put a um, a bar on that and said. Uh, political appointees cannot attend any political events at all heading uh, when it, uh, right before an election. That's Bloomberg News reporter Chris Strom. Thanks for being on with us. Thank you. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Up next, we talk with Holly Barker, a legal reporter at Bloomberg Law, about exactly when a law is scrubbed of its discriminatory origins. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're in for June Grosso. We're joined now by Holly Barker, a legal reporter at Bloomberg Law, to talk about a new effort she's seeing in federal courts of appeal. Thanks for joining us, Holly. My pleasure, guys. So you wrote an article recently focused on what it takes to scrub laws of their original discriminatory intent. What sort of laws are we talking about here? So we're talking mostly about uh, post-Reconstruction era laws dealing with felony voter disenfranchisement. Um, The laws were turn of the century and uh, ostensibly or definitely crafted uh, to discriminate against black voters specifically. You highlighted a, a recent ruling out of the U.S. Court of, of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Um, can you tell us about the two individuals challenging that Mississippi law that's at issue here? Yeah, so the Fifth Circuit case was Harness v. Watson, and Roy Harness, the named plaintiff, was convicted of forgery in 1986. Uh, he completed a sentence and later got a degree in social work and even got a scholarship towards a master's degree and apparently all at the age of 62. Uh, the other plaintiff is Kamal Karium. Uh He's a former Columbus, Mississippi City Council member uh, and also a pastor and a business owner. Uh, he was convicted of embezzlement in 2005 and likewise completed his sentence. Neither of them can vote. And so can you tell us a little bit about the law that those people are challenging in, in that case? So they're, they're challenging a Mississippi law that was originally enacted in 1890, and it was, it's been reenacted twice since then. 
according to the majority, um, the most recent time uh, being 1968. So that was sort of the operative year or legislature that they were looking at. So, so basically, the court took a look at this 1968 amendment, and, and they said, well, even though it had discriminatory intent, uh, you know, when it was originally enacted, it's been sent to the voters, it's gone through this process, and it's effectively been cleansed of its original discriminatory intent, meaning that the plaintiffs would have to prove all over again that the 1968 legislature had, had acted with some prohibited intent and couldn't sort of tie it back to that original taint from 1890. I understand the the full U.S. Court of Appeals, you know, took a look at this case. Can you talk about the significance of that? So uh, they've they've heard so they heard uh, a case dealing with the same law uh, in ni- in 1998, uh, Cotton v. Bordis, or about 25 years ago, and that appeal was uh, brought pro se uh, by an inmate who is seeking to have his his voting privileges reinstated. Um, he didn't advance a lot of arguments, um, and it's been a long time since the case was heard. And this case that came up was just was a little bit different. Um, and there had been there had been a lot of criticism of, of um, the prior decision in the interim. And the way that this case was argued that made it a little bit different was instead of just challenging the, the statute altogether, they identified this, the two specific offenses that had been added in the 1968 amendment and they carved those out and they said no 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 no. we're focusing on just these older felonies that were included in the original version because those are the ones that have it hasn't actually been amended the voters haven't revisited those particular provisions so that was sort of why the argument was fresh um uh, uh, you know the, the when uh when the court decides to hear a case uh on bank, they vote first. Um, mm. So one of the judges decided that it was time to revisit this case. Um, and, you know, and, and there was a substantial number of dissenters at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So you can see where that came from. Um, but, you know, there was enough of a consensus on the court that the original decision, the sort of premise, uh, you know, was wrongly decided that the, the idea that the 1968 amendments could have cleansed it of its original discriminatory intent was, was a was a bad call. Right. Uh, but they came down the same way again. So the majority leans into this argument that the 1968 amendments to the law were made via this deliberative process. What does that process look like and what was significant for the court? So I'll start by saying it wasn't significant because I, this is really, I think, the rub, uh, part of the rub with the dissent is they really didn't look at the sort of broader historical context, just sort of what the vibe was in 1968 Mississippi. Uh, instead, they just sort of looked um, in kind of a sterile way at the process. Uh, so each house of the state legislatures agreed to propose amendments by a two-thirds majority. Then uh, the entirety of the new amendment uh, was published uh, in advance of the election. Then it was the amended provision was printed on the ballot, and they had an opportunity to vote up or down, either for the entire provision or against the entire provision. And, and something the dissent criticized, and, and this was also an, an argument that the plaintiffs made that the majority rejected, uh, was that by presenting it to the voters this way, it really wasn't a reenactment. They didn't have an opportunity to vote down those original discriminatory offenses. Um, so that's sort of the difference. The majority called that a sufficient process. 
And and the dissenter said, you know, not only is that not a sufficient process, you can't disregard the broader context here. Um, and the broader context being Mississippi's, um, you know, relentless resistance to the civil rights movement in that time. I want to focus on the dissents for just a second um, here. And there was a one by Judge James Graves Jr., uh, which had an extraordinary sentence. Um, he said of Mississippi voters that it's hard to imagine an electorate so relentlessly active in its resistance to racial equality as somewhere suddenly race neutral in their handling of a racially motivated provision in its constitution. Um, and I'm curious, does Judge Graves mean that the law could never be scrubbed of its racist intent, or what does he think needs to have been done? Uh, I, no, I don't think he's saying that, it, that it's impossible or that it can never happen. I think he was just saying it, it absolutely didn't happen here, or at, or at a minimum, there's enough evidence uh, that Mississippi wasn't acting in good faith uh, that, that it isn't sufficient to sort of scrub that original discriminatory case. Um, so one, you know, he, he sort of started at the really basic elements of it. Just he said, you know, look, an amendment isn't a reenactment. Um, and that sort of goes into, you know, the voters didn't revisit the original core of the law. They just added, you know, two ostensibly less discriminatory provisions um, and, and uh, or, or crimes, I should say. Um the other, the other aspect that Graves was focused on was, you know, something again that the majority disregarded, which was, the, which was the broader history. Um, you know, they're, they're, they resisted constitutional mandates, federal mandates. Um, it, it was the idea that they would have complied with recommendations from a commission about their voting laws just didn't seem uh, to sort of pass the laugh test for him. Well, coming up, we'll continue our conversation with Holly Barker, a legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're in for June Grosso. We've been talking with Holly Barker about what it takes to get rid of old racist laws. And in particular, we were talking about a dissent by Judge Graves. And I'm wondering, you know, there's a really interesting aspect of his dissent that you talk about where he does talk about this context of Mississippi voters. Um, and he pulls on his own personal experience. And I was wondering if you could um, explain that for our listeners. He, he did. Um, he it was it was a really small piece of a very lengthy dissent, and he was careful to say that his his own personal experience wasn't the driving force uh, behind his decision here, but that you know he, he wouldn't feel fully transparent if he didn't you know if, if he didn't admit that he was reminded of his own experience growing up, which was basically in in, in the deep south. Uh, uh, it was, I believe, a few years before this 1968 vote. Uh, he remembers a cross ring burned on his grandmother's front lawn, which was, you know, three doors down from his house. So for him, uh, you know, racism was very alive and real in, in the Deep South at mm -hmm. the time. Um, so I think he was, you know, almost certainly uh, at least drawing from that to inform what he knew about the history. Right. Uh, well, there's another case in the neighboring 11th Circuit dealing with the same issue. Can you tell us about that case? 
Sure. That case uh, is Thompson v. Alabama. And so, actually, the Alabama law um, was modeled after the, the 1890 Mississippi law, but it wasn't passed until 1901. It was struck down by the, the Supreme Court, and then Alabama went ahead and, and reenacted it. Um, so now the challenge that's being raised is, is it's about a very specific provision uh, that, that worked its way back in when it was reenacted in 1996, and that was the crime of moral turpitude. And it was included in the original 1901 version because it was thought to be sufficiently squishy uh, of a category of crimes that they could sort of manipulate it and target black voters. Um, and, and so the, the argument there is largely this is the 1996 amendment was just a housekeeping process to, to get around an otherwise discriminatory law. Um, so in other words, it's sort of like it's laundering <laughs> as opposed to cleansing it is sort of their argument. Mm. So the U.S. Supreme Court has dealt with this issue of scrubbing discriminatory laws. And you highlight a case in the article you wrote recently from 1984. And there's also a footnote in the court's Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade that addresses the alleged discriminatory intent behind abortion laws. And in the context of the separation of church and state, we've seen the Supreme Court remark on so-called Blaine Amendments that were originally intended to limit the influence of Catholic schools. So I'm wondering, what can you tell us about what the Supreme Court has said about uh, scrubbing these laws of their originally discriminatory intent? Sure. So the 1984 case that you mentioned is Hunter v. Underwood, and that's the case that struck down Alabama's 1901 felony disenfranchisement law. I'm sorry. We can start over. Want to start that? Want to start the answer to that question over here? Go for it. That'd be great. So Hunter uh, Hunter v. Underwood is the 1984 case that you mentioned uh, that struck down Alabama's 1901 felony disenfranchisement law. Uh, and that was the one that was subsequently reenacted. And that case, um, it didn't establish this notion that you could scrub an otherwise discriminatory law by reenacting it, but it left open the possibility. So it struck down Alabama's law, and it said, you know, the, the, this law, when it was enacted, was enacted with racist intent, but we're withholding judgment as to whether or not a, leg- a legislature could scrub uh, a law by, uh, of its discriminatory intent by reenacting it. Um, so that so so Hunter versus Underwood didn't establish the principle, but it, it opened the door for these kinds of arguments, and that's that's what the sort of Fifth Circuit seized on, and and what the Eleventh Circuit has also subsequently adopted. Um, with respect to the Blaine amendments, uh, it's come up there too. Uh, but I, as far as I know, it, it, what I remember from it is Alito's dissent uh, basically saying that, you know, if it, they didn't use that test there. So they didn't say that these laws had been scrubbed. They, scrubbed, they, they struck them down as unconstitutional on their face. And, and the Blaine Amendment, which prohibit you know, state funds uh, from going to parochial schools, basically, uh, isn't on its face neutral, um, at least arguably, right? Because it it, it mm-hmm. targets anybody with a religion, and so that's that's sort of an explicit, uh, at least an arguably explicit, discriminatory standard. Um, so it's the 
the scrubbing got talked about in Alito's dissent, but he sort of did it begrudgingly and kind of like, uh, well, since we have to do this now, I'm going to tell you why I didn't think it got got scrubbed. That's Holly Barker, a legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. Thanks for being here, Holly. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're in for June Grosso. We're joined now by William Hahn, who's part of the team at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, representing Yeshiva University in its attempt to block a state court ruling requiring it to recognize an LGBTQ student group. It's the latest clash between gay rights and the exercise of free religion to come up to the high court. William, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Can you first tell us a little bit about your client, Yeshiva University? Because I think it's important um, to this case, just the identity of the school that we're talking about here. Absolutely. Uh, Yeshiva University is America's oldest Jewish institution of higher learning. It's world-renowned for being a leader in the study of Torah with secular academics. Its name, Yeshiva, literally means a school for the study of Talmud. That's the purpose for which it was formed, and it furthers that purpose today by training the next generation of modern Orthodox Jewish leaders around the world. The state court said that the school was required to recognize the club um, here. Can you explain for the listeners um, what the law um, that they're referring to that requires this um, does exactly? Well, the law that the trial court invoked is called the New York City Human Rights Law, but the law that the trial court declined to seriously consider is the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, because that's really what's at the core of this case, which is about who gets to decide who gets to direct the religious mission on Yeshiva's campus. How does Yeshiva, does Yeshiva get to make the decisions about how to form the next generation of students on its campus, or does the government get to make those decisions? The trial court decided that yeshiva is insufficiently religious to make those decisions and therefore can be forced to violate its Torah values, approve a campus club that its senior rabbinical leadership determined it couldn't put its seal of approval on, consistent with its Torah values. And this would open up 
the door to all kinds of crippling litigation against all aspects of yeshiva's religious mission, because not only does it account for religion when it's reviewing clubs, there are up to five hours of Torah study that's mandated by curriculum every single day. There's sex-segregated housing and schooling that's religiously driven. Elevators are rewired on Shabbat to prevent electronic usage. You could even have electronics publicly confiscated on campus if you're on the Sabbath using them. There's kosher requirements throughout campus. This is a deeply religious university, and no one in the case disputes that. But the trial court just decided that yeshiva isn't religious enough Hmm. because it also trains people in secular degrees. Yeah, I wanted to um, kind of flesh out that idea of yeshiva not being religious enough because there are kind of carve-outs to this New York City human rights law that, you know, anticipates this sort of tension um, with the free exercise of religion. So why is it that the lower court said that that just didn't apply to the university here? The lower court took uh, a look at yeshiva's corporate documents and decided that yeshiva didn't clearly spell out what it said actually when it was incorporated, which is that it's a school that exists to promote the study of Talmud, and that it, and that purpose expressly has been continued, as its more recent corporate documents say. But to be honest with you, the corporate document dispute and the whether or not yeshiva used the magic words in its corporate language is really beside the point, because the First Amendment protects all kinds of religious organizations, not just, quote-unquote, religious corporations. It protects all kinds of religious organizations, and as we've seen in a number of recent Supreme Court decisions, U.S. Supreme Court decisions, it clearly protects religious schools. We saw this in a main case last term. We've seen it in cases brought by the Beckett Fund involving um, religious schools out of California in the Our Lady of Guadalupe case and in the Hosanna Tabor case back in 2012. Mm. Now, the current Supreme Court um, seems to be very protective of religious freedom, and in particular, the right of those to freely exercise their religion. Do you agree with that assessment? And if so, how does this petition from Yeshiva fit into the court's religion docket here? Well, I think it's a commitment that goes beyond even, strictly speaking, religion cases. The Supreme Court decided in a case called Bostock, where it understood Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to cover uh, protection for sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. There, a majority of the court said that the free exercise of religion lies at the heart of a pluralistic society. So this is a a a widely acknowledged commitment across the court. Some of the decisions that I mentioned previously were 9-0 decisions or 7-2 decisions. Mm -hmm. There is a widespread consensus that at the core of our best traditions is one of religious accommodation and a respect for pluralism. And that means that Yeshiva University, a school that everyone understands to be deeply and pervasively religious, including the people that sued it, they admit to that, and they went there for that reason, um, gets to be a religious university in terms of how it forms and shapes its, its campus environment. I'm just wondering from an advocate's perspective, is this the kind of case that at this point uh, you would have brought it up to the justices in you know, years past? Or is there a sense among you know, Supreme Court um, attorneys that the justices are more receptive to these kinds of requests now? I think that the concern about the Supreme Court's emergency docket in cases like this is also something of being beside the point, because Mm -hmm. 
if the concern is is that the court's not getting enough briefing, this case, our case, went through summary judgment, which is as thorough as it gets in the trial court. There was separate briefing about an injunction. There's been briefing at the uh, intermediate appellate level in New York, at the New York Court of Appeals. There's been amicus briefs filed in the case. The idea that the court isn't familiar with how to handle a final decision on the merits and isn't familiar with how to handle an emergency, that's what the Supreme Court exists to do. Um, Maybe some people don't like the fact that the emergency docket is being used to solve certain kinds of emergencies that maybe they don't think are emergencies, Mm -hmm. but that's different than saying that that there's a problem with the emergency docket. Hmm. Now, this case has gotten a lot of traction on social media, um, with many pointing out um, that the graduate schools at Yeshiva have already recognized LGBTQ groups. Um, Is that relevant, or is the undergraduate school different here? No, it's also beside the point, because the question isn't, the question is a question of who decides. The question is, who decides how to direct the religious mission at Yeshiva? When it comes to the graduate schools, Yeshiva made a religious judgment that a professional school where people are older, at a different stage in life, their religious identity is already a bit more formed than people just leaving home for the first time, they're going to take a different approach toward religiosity on those campuses than they might take in their undergraduate campus, where in the case of the men's campus at Yeshiva, the rabbinical seminary is literally integrated within the men's campus. So I want to make sure that we're kind of situating the listeners here. Where does this case stand now? Is there any? Do you have any expectations on when the Supreme Court might rule on your request? Well, the Supreme Court has called for a response from the other side no later than 5 p.m. tomorrow. And so we expect a prompt ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, and we're hopeful that the Supreme Court will do what it has consistently done, which is reflect our best traditions of accommodation and and pluralism toward religion. Um, There's also the underlying appeal of the merits of the case that's still proceeding in the New York courts. Uh, That that is going on as well. Uh, But the principal focus right now is the emergency application at the Supreme Court because the semester has begun at Yeshiva. There's a permanent injunction telling Yeshiva you need to immediately violate your Torah values or we're going to sanction you. And so that is the foremost dispute, and the Supreme Court will, I'm sure, promptly resolve it. And if and we hope and are optimistic consistently with our best uh, traditions under the First Amendment. Now, I know it's always a little risky to uh, read the tea leaves in terms of what the Supreme Court, uh, you know, is going to do here. But I was wondering if you uh, could take a guess and if you um, had any sense of where you think the uh, court might come down on this emergency application. Well, I, as, as I suggested, I think the Supreme Court is going to vindicate yeshiva's religious liberty. Uh, the court recognizes uh, again and again, and, and in 9-0 decisions, 7-2 decisions, that 8-1 decisions, we, we, Beckett was involved in a case last year called Ramirez versus Collier that also began on the emergency docket as it involved a death penalty-related issue. Uh, and then was resolved um, in after merits uh, going on the merits docket. Uh, again and again, the Supreme Court acknowledges the high stakes that are at issue when someone's religious freedom is being put under threat. It's in the First Amendment for a reason, and the Supreme Court gets that, and so I'm confident that yeshiva's religious liberty will be vindicated. Yeah, I, I uh, know that Beckett has had a pretty good run at the Supreme Court, uh, particularly recently, and still one of my favorite Supreme Court 
court cases is the one that you all handled dealing with these miniature pistols hidden in prisoners' beards. Um, I wonder, though, in this... (laughs) That's right. I wonder, though, in this case, if there are any particular justices that you're watching. Uh, we, We just... We respect the whole Supreme Court because every single justice, if you think about a case like Fulton, that was a 9-0 decision. That was a case that we had the privilege of bringing. And every single justice acknowledged that. In that case, Catholic Social Services, a religious foster agency that really began foster care in the city of Philadelphia, couldn't be kicked out of public life because of its religious beliefs. Every single justice recognized that. Um, another case we had, Hosanna Tabor from 2012, that involves a similar question of the ability of a church or religious organization to decide who's going to, how they're going to carry out their mission, preach and teach and form the next generation. That was a 9-0 decision as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we're, we're very confident that this principle is widely understood by every justice on the court, and we look forward to seeing what the U.S. Supreme Court will do in vindicating Shiva's religious liberty. Well. Thanks so much for getting us up to speed on this case. Uh, That was William Hahn. And that's going to do it for this episode of Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.